Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Turn your Bibles to Jude. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 8 in the first chapter. So Jude 1, 1 through 8. Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God and the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, knew it that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did, not, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Well, good morning. Thank you, uh, worship team and scripture reader. This morning we are going to uh, be in that passage in Jude. Um, we're actually going to do twice as much as what I asked Chad to read. It's a, it's a longer section, but it, it holds together well and it keeps us on schedule. So, but, but it's good. It's, uh, yeah, it's a long passage, so get to it if you haven't already. Jude is the second to last book of the Bible, so we're all the way there at the end. It's the book right before Revelation, if you didn't look it up before. Um, before we uh, pray, I wanted to... Um, just let folks know, I think most maybe would have heard that Shirley Breach passed away on, um, on Friday. I know a lot of folks have been praying for her. She's a longtime one of our senior saints, and um, she went home to be with the Lord on Friday. And uh, in terms of services and stuff, I know people have been wondered about that. There's going to be an open visitation, is how the family wants to do it, at the, um, at the Roland Funeral Home. It hasn't been scheduled yet. Actually, there's a little bit of some sickness in the family right now as they're recovering. So, so that will be scheduled. We'll make sure you get to know about that so you get to, to visit them. But that'll be coming up, But um, just as people have wondered about that. And do keep uh, Elvin and, and their, uh, their family in your prayers. Uh, I'm sure I know they'd appreciate it. I know they would appreciate it for sure. So uh, let's pray together and uh, ask the Lord's help with this text. Lord, thank you for bringing us here this morning. Thank you for the, the joy and the privilege of, of fellowship and of worship and of studying your word. Uh, we do pray uh, uh, for our brother Elvin, Lord, and ask that you will um, comfort him as he uh, faces now living uh, after so many years with Shirley, not having his wife by his side now. 
And uh, we would just pray you'd comfort his heart, uh, comfort uh, their son Roger and his wife Denise and, and, and others who are grieving, Lord. We pray that you will uh, give, them, uh, give them peace. And uh, we thank you that uh, surely salvation uh, was secure in you and that uh, because of what we celebrated before with the table, there's a, there's a place for her that she's entered into and uh, that you're holding for all of us. And so we just thank you for that, Lord. Uh, we would ask for your help with this passage. I pray that every week, Lord, but I feel like I especially need it this morning. And uh, just as a lot of, a lot of um, sticky things, or uh, just things that we need, we need help with. So we just pray for your help, Holy Spirit. Help us to understand this text with our minds, but then make sure it goes down to our hearts, Lord. Because if we only get it with our minds, we've, we haven't gotten it. So we pray you'd apply this to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you eat poison? If someone offered it to you, if someone uh, held out a bowl and said, here's some poison, would you like some? Uh, Would you take it? The answer, of course, is no. Of course, you wouldn't eat poison. But what if you didn't know it was poison? What if you didn't know? What if the poison was hidden in a, uh, a lovely package, a tempting package? What if it was maybe in, in a candy bar or injected into a piece of fruit? Uh, would you eat it then? Well, now your answer is going to depend. It's going to depend on something very important. It's going to depend on whether somebody warns you, right? Whether somebody warns you. If no one warns you, you may well eat that poison. But if someone says, hey, watch out, (laughs) that's dangerous. That that, that fruit's got poison in it. Uh, If if somebody warns you, you're going to avoid it for sure. You're, You're going to stay far away from that because you were warned. That is what Jude is doing. That's what Jude does in this little letter. He warns us about a deadly poison so that we will stay away from it, so that we stay as far away from it as we can. This morning, we're uh, starting the first of two. We're doing two Sundays, the next two Sundays, today and next week, uh, through the little letter of Jude. It's a little letter. It's only one chapter, 25 verses. That's it. Uh, If you've been here this fall, you know this is part of a a series I've taken us through this fall, uh, Living with Sense in Serious Times. I've I've put together uh, 2 Peter and Jude, uh, and I've done that because these two little books, I mean, 2 Peter is kind of little too, it's only three chapters, but it's longer. Um, They have a lot in common, a lot of shared illustrations, shared language, uh, very much the same themes. And, and one of the things that these two books share is that they are both warnings. Like the, the book itself is a warning. That's true for Second Peter. And, and it's especially clear with Jude that it's a warning. Uh, like I say, it's, it's, uh, it's a short book, and it's almost the entire thing is dedicated to this warning. Uh, and so it really stands out. There's, there's a poison that threatens the church, not just in his generation, but in every generation. It's the same thing we talked about with Second Peter. Uh, these, this, the, the issues both of these men were writing about in their letters weren't just first century issues. They, they recur. They recur in every generation, so we're dealing with them too. So we're going to cover, as I said a minute ago, we're going to cover a big section this morning. I want to cover verses 1 through 16. And as we work through these verses, I, I want to focus on sin. I want to focus on the problem of sin. And, and here's why. Jude talks a lot you heard half of it before, and we'll hear the rest in a few minutes. Uh, Jude talks a lot in these verses about the danger of false teaching, which we talked about, right? We talked about that in Second Peter, especially chapter 2. It was really the, the main focus of Second Peter chapter 2. And so 
if, if I was doing Jude all by itself, like five years from now or something, I, I might not approach this text exactly the same way. I might focus more on the danger of false teaching in general. But we just talked about false teaching in general in Second Peter. So what Jude allows us to do, since they, they share so much the same, this book of Jude and the second chapter of, of Peter, Second Peter, what that's going to let us do is zero in more on what the fruit of that false teaching was. See, the, the, uh, the false teaching that both men warn about, it was of a particular brand. It was of a particular type. And, and you know, because there's different kinds of false teaching, right? There's different kinds. And the kind he was focused on, the, both of these men are focused on, is, is a, like a, a, a false teaching that promotes sin. So it's very obvious as you read through both letters that both men were dealing with uh, scenarios where teachers were, were urging Christians to indulge in sin, Right? And, that's, and so that's where false teaching leads. Jude is addressing a kind of false teaching that says, hey, just do what you want. Go ahead and do with whatever you want. He, he says that in verse 4. He says these ungodly people that he's going to warn us about were perverting the grace of our God into sensuality. See, not all false teaching does that. Some false teaching kind of promotes an asceticism, like a, where you, you punish yourself and, and, and uh, are really like, beat yourself even. Like that's a different kind of false teaching. That's not the one he's worried about in this letter. He's worried about the false teaching that was perverting the grace of our God into sensuality. And so what we, we think was happening, reading between the lines, uh, there were apparently people in the early church, and there are still people today who do the same thing. Uh, there were people who were taking the doctrine of justification by faith, how are we saved? We, we celebrated it before. We're saved uh, by our faith in what Jesus did for us. There's no work that we bring to the table. It is simply what Jesus did for us. We believe in that and we're saved. They were taking that doctrine and twisting it into a license to commit sin. Right? They were twisting it. So if Jesus paid it all, then you can do whatever you want. Right? That's what they were arguing. So do you want to commit adultery? Do you want to visit the temple prostitutes when you're in the big cities? Do you want to worship idols? Do you want to abuse your servants or cheat your masters or whatever else you might be tempted to do? Go right ahead. Right? 20th century version of that or 21st is if it feels good, do it. Right? If after all, God will forgive you. God will forgive you afterwards. That's what he's warning us about there in verse 4. And so what it was was this cheapening of grace. Right? They're, they're at the, at the, that was what was at the heart of the false teaching both Peter and Jude are dealing with in these letters. So rather than focus on false teaching in general, I want to be specific and ask, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, what, what is the problem with sin? I mean, God does forgive us when we sin, doesn't he? So why not? Right? Why not just do whatever we want to do and then just go and ask for forgiveness after the fact. So, so what's the problem? Why is sin, the sin that comes out of this false teaching they were, they were promoting, why is it so dangerous that it merits the strength of these warnings, the strong things that, that he says in this letter? And that is what the, the question this passage answers. I, I really think it does. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about how important it is for us to stand against not false teaching in general, but against the deceitfulness of sin. Right? We need to stand against the deceitfulness of sin. That's what I want to talk about this morning here from, from the, the first two-thirds or so of the book of Jude. And what I, the way I want to do this, just to, again, to help us work through the text, I always find an outline helpful. It's at least how my brain works. Uh, what I want to show you are seven reasons sin is so dangerous. 
right? So that's our outline this morning. Seven reasons sin is so dangerous. If we, if we start following that kind of grace-cheapening theology, if we start following teachers who promote that kind of stuff and indulging in sin ourselves, we are putting ourselves in grave, in grave danger. And it's because of these seven reasons that Jude is going to walk us through. So let's look at the passage together. Let's uh, familiarize ourselves with, uh, with Jude. And, and uh, do we won't, again, this is one of those things I'm going to try to dig into most of what's here, but we might leave a few questions unanswered. Feel free to come grab me afterwards. I'll happy to answer a question if I miss one. But, but let's get as many of these as we can. So uh, before, I, uh, before I hit reason number one, let me just tell you a little bit about Jude. Now, we did a lot of this way back in, way back, not too, not too far back, but, but back in September uh, when I introduced this series, I told you about Jude, when I told you about Peter, so I told you who this was. So let me just remind us a little bit of what we did that Sunday. Uh, who is the letter from? It's from Jude, right? That's why we call it Jude. Uh, who's Jude? Jude is actually the brother of Jesus. Uh, there are six different men in the New Testament named Jude, but you can eliminate all of them just through a process of elimination. We end up figuring out this was written by Ju- uh, the half-brother of Judas. So they shared Mary uh, as their mother. And so uh, he's Jesus' little brother, right? That's who Jude is. And he became a leader in the church. So he was respected uh, both because of his authority in the church, but then also his association with Jesus. Uh, he is writing. Who's he writing to? He's writing to believers, Right? And it's one of the general epistles, so it's not to a specific city, it's to, it's to believers in general. And that's important. It's important because he's not writing to the false teachers. You see, it would be possible to read a book like this and, and take the whole thing through the lens of, you know, Jude is scolding or condemning the false teachers. He actually never addresses the false teachers. Right? He, he, he realizes they might be in the room listening in, but, but he never addresses them. He's talking to us. Right? It's one of the reasons I want us to do communion first. I wanted that, that assurance of salvation and that memory. So we're not talking about losing our salvation in this text. We're talking about how believers, because we don't believe you can lose your salvation. We're talking about how believers deal with the temptations of sin. Right? That's what this text is about for us. He's warning us about those temptations and those dangers. So he's writing to believers, Jude writing to believers. And then verse 2, uh, it's the standard greeting format of an ancient letter, not just in the Bible, but in all kinds of literature. And so he starts with a blessing. Uh, he says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Um, I'm not going to say anything about those today. I might come back to them next week, especially the mercy part. Because if you read through, if you want to read ahead and study ahead for next week, if you read through the last part of the letter, he's going to really hammer home in a lovely way uh, the role of mercy in our lives. And so uh, I'll come back to mercy next week. But you've got that standard greeting in verse 2. Then Jude gets down to business, like you do in a biblical letter. You do the introductory stuff. Then you get down to business, uh, verse 3. I wanted to read verse 3 again. Uh, He says, uh, Beloved... Very warm word. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So apparently, this is interesting, Jude wanted to write a different letter. He wanted to write a different letter. He was going to write a letter about salvation. Right, and so it, I, I, I don't think we have it. We don't have the. If, if he ever did get around to writing it, it's lost to us. We don't have it. Uh, he was going to write this just general letter about faith and grace and love and all that wonderful stuff, and he was really looking forward to it. But instead, he had to write this letter, 
And, and it gives you a sense of the urgency of this, right? There's, uh, you know, I was, I was going to write a nice, cheerful letter, and then I heard about this danger you guys are facing, so I was like, oh, no! And, and I, rushed to, to, I rushed to knock out this warning to you, is, is really what he says there. And, and he says, I, I, I'm writing to you instead uh, to, to urge you, right? I think this translation says, appeal to you. I appeal to you. The word almost has the sense of beg to it. I, I beg you. Uh, I urge you to contend for the faith. And that word means to struggle or fight. Struggle or fight is what that word contend means. This is a spiritual call to arms. All right, not physical arms, but spiritual arms. It's a call to arms. You need to defend the faith, he says. You need to defend your faith, he, he says. And that brings us to our, our false teachers here because they're the ones we're supposed to defend ourselves against, them and what they're teaching. All right, so that's verse 4. Verse 4 gives us the reason for verse 3. Here's why I had to knock out this warning letter to you, he says. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this, condemna condemna for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So false teachers were, were infiltrating the church. They were sneaking into the church. He says they've crept in unnoticed and they're dangerous. Right? They're dangerous. They're not, they're not harmless sneaking in. They're, they're dangerous sneaking in. And the reason they're, they're dangerous, he actually identifies two things. The first is they deny Jesus, right? They, and they deny the truth about Jesus. We actually talked about that one quite a bit in 2 Peter 2, which is why I'm not going to go back to that one. But the other thing that's making them so dangerous is they're promoting sin. They're coming into believers and they're promoting things that God forbids. They're perverting the grace of our God into sensuality, he says. And then that leads to the reasons, right? So here's what Peter, uh, dude, is going to do in verses 5 through 16. He's just going to come at it. He's just going to build this strong case. This is a really strong case uh, for why sin is so dangerous, right? Why this false teaching, which is promoting sin, here's why it's so dangerous, he says. Uh, reason number one, it leads to judgment. He just goes there first, right? He goes big, right? It's the ultimate reason uh, to reject sin in our lives. Sin is dangerous because sin leads to judgment, he says, the judgment of God. And he does, he shows us this with three examples, right? So Jude, um, if, you, if you read through Jude, Jude a few times, or even like get out of commentary, I know some of you actually, we had a women's Bible study study through Jude a few, uh, several months ago. Um, you almost certainly noticed that um, he loves threes, he loves to bundle things in threes, and, and he does that several places you'll see this morning. This is the first one. Actually, he did it in the introduction, too. Mercy, grace, and peace, right? Um, but he, he loves threes, and this is one of them. In, in verses 5 through 7, he gives us three examples of how God judges sin. Right? So he, he pulls from the past. He says, look, God judges sin. Let me, let me read those verses again. I just like them to be in our heads. Uh, he says, now I want to, I want to remind you and that, that verb, I want to remind you, I, I take the sense of it to carry all the way to through to verse 16. A lot of this is just all reminder, right? So he says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He's kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as, here's another one, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So three examples. 
Uh, first example, Exodus, the people of the Exodus, right? That's the one in verse 5. Um, interestingly, I'm sure you caught this, Jude says that Jesus saved the Israelites out of, uh, out of Egypt, right? He says, he says that Jesus saved them, uh, which might come as a surprise to you if you've read Exodus recently, because Jesus is not mentioned uh, in, in Exodus. But Jude knows that Jesus is God, Right? This is actually one of those verses, if you were trying to show someone that the New Testament teaches that Jesus is God, I would go, this is a good verse to go to. It's not one of the ones a lot, it's not usually one of the first ones we go to, but Jude, an inspired author of Scripture, equates Jesus as the God who led the Israelites out of Egypt, right? So Jesus is the one who saved them out. But, he reminds us, he also destroyed the ones who didn't believe. He destroyed the ones who, who rebelled against him in, in the wilderness and in the desert. Uh, this is a, a good place uh, to say something that I could say anywhere in this letter, so I'll just say it here up front. Uh, if we need a reminder of why we need the Old Testament, Jude is a great example. <laughs> it really is. If we're ever tempted to say, well, the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of hard to understand sometimes, we'll just do the New Testament. We'll just focus on the New Testament. I'll just read the New Testament. If we're ever tempted to think that, Jude reminds us of why that is not a good, uh, a good strategy. You cannot make any sense of the book of Jude, or almost no sense. I guess you could maybe make some basic sense, but you really cannot understand a book like Jude, for example without some familiarity with, with the Old Testament. And, and so keep reading that Old Testament. I know it's challenging, but uh, let's, we'll, we'll slog through it together. It's, 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 uh, it's worth it, right? It's worth it to understand because so much of the New Testament draws from what's in there. And that is what Jude is assuming, not just in, in this first example, but through most of what we're looking at today. He's assuming a basic familiarity with the Old Testament. And so he starts with the Exodus. God rescued the Israelites from Egypt, he says. Give me a second here. Notes are freezing. Uh, God uh, rescued the, the Israelites from Egypt, uh, but then as he took them into the promised land and toward the promised land, uh, they didn't even get into it yet, and they were already rebelling, right? Rebel if you read through Exodus, if you read through Numbers, you get rebellion after rebellion after rebellion. And he judged them, right? I mean, he was patient with them. You know, sometimes, you know, like the thing with the water, the first time they they're demanding water. He's, you know, but, but over time, you see it in the story of the Exodus and what follows thereafter in that generation. The whole generation, except for Caleb and Joshua, don't even get to go into the promised land. Uh, but why? Because sin leads to judgment, right? That's his example number one. Uh, his, ex his second example is in verse six, and it's the rebellious angels. Uh, these are the same beings that we talked about in Second Peter chapter two, verse four. Uh, and uh, I don't assume everybody was here that Sunday, but what I argued that Sunday is that what he's talking about is the rebellion of the angels. One third of the angelic beings rebelled against the Lord in history past, right? So we don't know exactly when it happened, but at some point in ancient past, uh, Lucifer led, the chief of all the angels, led a rebellion against, against God and tried to basically usurp authority, and God conquered them. There was a great war in the heavens, the book of Revelation says, and, and God won, no surprise, and Lucifer was cast down, and they were, they were locked in this judgment, and it seems to be this sense in which they're allowed some, some general uh, authority on earth, but they are under condemnation already, right? So that's what, uh, so that was Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and I think that's exactly what Jews referring to the same thing here in verse 6. 
There are some other possible interpretations. I'm not even going to bother with those this morning because whatever interpretation you find most persuasive, the point is that God judged them, right? So whichever set of angels, whichever particular angelic rebellion you think it happens to be describing, God judged them. That's Jude's point. That's why he doesn't actually go into all those details and we're left kind of going, wondering which one he means. Uh, it's God judged them, right? So, so it's again, example two, sin. When creatures rebel against the creator, that sin, that rebellion leads to judgment, he says. And then his third example is a little more well-known. It's Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, he mentions that one or cites that one in verse 7. You can read all about Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis. Uh, since uh, Jude uh, doesn't tell the stories, I'm not going to tell the stories either. I'll just kind of remind us of all of them. But if you want to look it up later, Genesis 18 and 19, that's where you can read about Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, just to summarize it, uh, there were these ancient cities. They're actually in the region that we call Israel today, um, down in the southern part of where the Dead Sea would be, Sodom, Gomorrah. There were actually some smaller cities too. That would, that's what he's talking about when he says surrounding cities. We usually think of Sodom and Gomorrah because they were the big ones, but there was a whole little cluster of cities there. Uh, in about 4,000 years ago, in the time of Abraham, uh, they became an absolute den of iniquity, just a hotbed of sin, right? They'd make... You know, they make uh, Las Vegas look like the Vatican. I mean, it's just, just a, a overwhelming sin going on in these cities, uh, especially sexual sin, especially sexual sin. Jude singles that one out in verse 7. He, uh, what does he say about those cities? They indulged in sexual immorality and they pursued unnatural desire. And what he's talking about there is homosexuality specifically. There's, there's no other reasonable way to interpret that the phrase there. That's what he's talking about, especially when you read the Sodom and Gomorrah story in Genesis 18 and 19. And so what Jude is, is doing here is he reminds us God didn't just look the other way, right? And, and in particular, he, he singles out sexual sin. I'm not the one singling it out. Jude is. God didn't just look the other way with sexual sin. He judged it. Jude says. He judged it, and, and he even he makes this comment that, you know, sometimes people say, well, would God really use fire to judge? You know, people talk about, you know, well, hell can't really be fire. Well, just ask Sodom and Gomorrah whether God uses fire to judge. Jude just lays it out there that Sodom and Gomorrah stand as this eternal example that, yes, God does use fire to judge, he says. And so, again, what's the point of the Sodom and Gomorrah example? It's, it's, Sin leads to judgment, right? So he's, he's again, like I told you, he, he really builds the case. He really wants us to get it. You could have got away with one example, Jude, but, but he gives us three. Sin leads to judgment. We can count on it. So that's the first number, first answer, or first reason. Reason number one, sin leads to judgment. That's what makes it dangerous. Number two, sin is dangerous because it rejects God's authority. Right? And, and these two are wrapped together. This is, this is sort of like the reason why it incurs judgment, or one of the reasons why. It also has to do with God's holiness. But fundamentally, sin is a throwing off of a rebellion against the authority of God, which considering the authority God has is a very dangerous thing to do, right? It's like you know, attacking the strongest person there is is really what it does. Uh, and so verses 8 through 10 emphasize this idea, the danger of uh, the, 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 the rejection of authority. So let me read those verses together. And this is about where we left off in our reading. So verse 80 says, Yet in like manner these people, and he's back to the these people, it's the teachers from verse 4, 
These people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So these, te- these people, that phrase refers back to the false teachers, the certain people he, re- he introduced in verse 4. Uh, he, he, uh, he says they defile the flesh, right? So he took us way back in history to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now he brings us back to the present. He says, just like the folks in Sodom and Gomorrah, these guys are defiling the flesh. And so he, he picks up on the, the sexual sin from the previous verse. There's, that, that's one of several reasons in this text to think that that was it wasn't probably the only thing that these false teachers were promoting to the churches, to the Christians, but it was, it was one of them, and that hasn't changed. It's still true today. The world and false teachers are still promoting sexual sin to God's people in all kinds of ways. Uh, they were dealing with it too. We're not alone in that. They were dealing with it too. And so he picks up on that, carries it over into here, uh, but then he, he goes this next step to authority, right? And so he says, um, they were relying on their dreams, he says, So these false teachers are relying on their dreams, and the point of that is that they are setting something in themselves as a higher authority than God's Word, right? So so yeah, God's Word says this, but I had a dream, right? I had a vision. That's really where they're coming from. And so they're, they're rejecting this authority in favor of this authority, their own authority. And uh, there's a good kind of side lesson here for us, uh, although maybe it's not such a side lesson, it's an important one. Uh, Whenever someone says to us, God told me, and they put God told me ahead of God says, right? Whenever somebody puts God told me ahead of God's word says, be very, very careful of that person, right? That person is dangerous because they're doing exactly what Jude is warning us against here in verse 8. They're putting themselves as a higher authority. They're setting themselves up as, a, as an authority above God. And that's what these false teachers were doing, right? God's word wasn't enough for them. They were, they were relying on their own dreams, he says. That was, that's their authority. And flowing out of that, so then he gives us an ex, or I, I must think it's an illustration of one of the ways one of the things that's happening because they're rejecting authority. And that gets us to this blaspheming the glorious ones. They're blaspheming the glorious ones, he says. Uh, and uh, this is another connection to Second Peter because Second uh, Peter talks, uses the same language, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, they're both talking about angels. Right? I remember we dealt with this when we dealt with that chapter. Uh, you say, who's the glorious ones? It, it's, it's angels. It's angelic beings Neither man gives us anything more than that. We don't even know if it's good angels or bad angels. It's not 100% clear. But the point is, whatever they were saying about angels, this blaspheming the glorious ones, whatever they were saying or teaching about angels was wrong. And the reason it was wrong is that it was coming out of their own heads and not out of what's revealed to us in Scripture. So they were making claims of authority. They were making claims to know things about angels that cannot be known from scripture. And so there's this, there's a spiritual arrogance here. There's a rebelliousness. There's a rejection of the authority of God and God's word. And then Jude offers us this counter example, right? He could, I suppose he could leave it there, but he wants to bolster the point. And so he says, uh, he gives us a, a counter example, a good example, someone who didn't reject authority. And it's Michael, the archangel. 
He says, you remember, right? You remember? It's, it's Markle, my, Michael the archangel. Uh, an, an archangel is basically a high-ranking angel, right? One of the highest-ranking angel, chief angel, we might say. Jude says, you, you remember when uh, Jude was uh, fighting with, or excuse me, you, you remember when Michael was fighting with the devil over the body of Moses. And it was this titanic battle, and it was going on between these two powerful angelic beings. And even in the midst of this battle, Michael, this powerful being, one of the most powerful angels that exists, even Michael knew better than to uh, uh, rebuke the devil in his own authority. Instead, Michael said, the Lord rebuke you. Right? That's verse 9. So you picture this, you know, it's the stuff of sci-fi movies, you know, this battle going on between these two angels. And, and uh, Michael says, the Lord rebuke you to, to uh, the fallen angel Lucifer. That's verse 9. Now, if you are struggling to remember, remember where that one is, right? Somebody right now is, is that Ezekiel? That's got to be Ezekiel. That sounds like an Ezekiel kind of thing, right? Uh, if you're trying to remember where this comes from, it's actually not in the Bible, it actually comes from a, an extra-biblical book, is the term we, we use. It's from another book called The Assumption of Moses. Uh, the Assumption as in the taking up of, not like Moses made an assumption, but, but the, uh, the taking up, the Assumption of Moses. And uh, I'm going to guess that none of us have ever read The Assumption of Moses. Uh, I know I haven't ever read. It didn't come up in seminary. But if we were first-century Jews, this was a popular book. We would all, many of us would have read the Assumption of Moses at some point, or at least we would be familiar with it. We would know the plot. We would know what it's all about. And that's why Jude quotes it, all right? So he's not telling us this, that the Assumption of Moses is inspired scripture. And so, therefore, he's not necessarily telling us that this titanic struggle between uh, Moses, uh, between Lucifer and Michael over the body of Moses actually happened. I think it might have actually happened because there is this verse in Deuteronomy that says nobody knows where the body of Moses is. Maybe it's because God took it up to heaven. That would make some sense. But, uh, but, but that's not in Scripture. But his point, Jude's point, is to offer us this example. He's offering us an illustration of somebody who knew better. Right, so even Michael, one of the most powerful creatures in the universe, short of God, right, one of the most powerful angels, even he knew better than to try to, to go over God's head. Even he knew better than to, to go after an authority higher than God's authority. But not these false teachers. That's his whole point. I explain all that because I know y'all, most of you anyway, like to know that kind of stuff. But, but his point is, his point is, these false teachers, they, they, they're just claiming, they're making themselves their own authority. They're saying their authority is more important than God's authority. Even angels, powerful angels, know better than that. But not these guys. And so it's dangerous. It's dangerous uh, to be like them. Number three, the third reason, and each one of these kind of goes a little quicker you know, as we lay foundation stuff, and each text gets shorter too. Uh, but the third one is, has to do with corruption. So sin leads to judgment, sin, sin rejects authority, and then sin spreads its corruption. And with this one, we start to get into some of the more practical reasons, right? Or pragmatic reasons that sin is so dangerous for us. Uh, you know, it's easy to kind of put off God's judgment. That won't be for a long, long time. But uh, here, here's one that, that happens almost immediately in most of our experience. Sin spreads its corruption to other people. And that's verse 11. He says in verse 11, Woe to them, still talking about the, the, these people, the, the teachers, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and they perished in 
Korah's rebellion. So there's another one of his triplets, three uh, examples. Like I told you, he likes to do that. He starts by saying woe to them. So he reminds us of judgment. He's never going to let us get too far away from that overriding danger of sin. Sin leads to judgment. So he says woe to them. It's a pronunciation of judgment. And then he gives us three more more examples from the past of people who sinned. And they all were ones who were judged. I think that carries over. But they're also, as I was studying these, the thing that all three of these examples in verse 11 have in common is that they all spread to lots of other people. So you start out with one person's sin, but it doesn't just stop with one person. It spreads to many, many others. So his first example is Cain. Right, Cain. You remember Cain? This is Genesis chapter 4. Uh, Cain... Um, gets angry and jealous at, angry at his, his brother Abel, angry at God and angry at his brother Abel. And so he lures him out into the field and he kills him, right? He doesn't, you know, use his words. He doesn't try to talk it out or negotiate some kind of an, he just takes his brother Abel out and kills him, which makes Cain the first murderer. But he sure wasn't the last murderer. It's one of the functions of the the Cain story in Genesis is not only did this thing happen, but then it keeps happening again and again and again. Human beings have been living with murder and violence and and war and all the rest of it ever since. So Cain, his sin didn't just affect him, it spilled over to the whole human race. Uh, Example number two is Balaam's error. Balaam's error, they abandoned themselves to Balaam's error. Uh, You can read about Balaam in Numbers. Uh, Numbers chapters 22, 23, 24. Uh, <clears throat> if you're <clears throat> Balaam is, is a prophet, not a prophet of the Lord, but a, he's kind of a prophet for hire sort of a guy. And he'll, he'll serve whatever God happens to be paying that particular day. That really is the, the feel you get for him. And he is hired by one of Israel's enemies to place a curse on the people of, of, of Israel. And you can do look this one up if you haven't read it in a while. It's a, it's a good one. Uh, Numbers 22, 23, 24. Uh, the, the uh, enemies of Israel, it's the Midianites, uh, try to hire him, and he keeps trying to pronounce a curse on them, but every time he opens his mouth, blessing comes out. God won't let him curse his people. So, so Balaam is frustrated, right? His, his uh, curse for hire business is being hurt here, so, so he's frustrated. Usually we stop there with the Balaam story, but that's actually not the end of the Balaam story. Uh, Balaam doesn't give up. You actually have to give the guy credit for perseverance, if nothing else. If you keep reading in Numbers, you find out that he just switches tactics. And he ends up going to these people, to the Midianites, and he basically tells them, we don't have a record of this conversation, but it goes basically like this. If you can't get their God to curse them, then just use sex instead. That seems to be the advice that Balaam gave to, uh, to the Midianites, just seduce them, because that's what the Midianites did, and you read in Numbers 25 that some of the Israelite men, uh, suddenly these people who are trying to curse them, these people that they're supposed to go in and destroy and get rid of them, uh, suddenly we find almost inexplicably Israelite men begin to sleep with the, with the Midianite women, and they're bringing them back to the camp and, and all of this. Direct violation, brazen violation of what God said. So God punishes them, God sends a plague. God sends a plague into the camp, and uh, Numbers 25 says that 24,000 Israelites died in the plague before they, uh, they put an end to, to this practice. 24,000 people. So Balaam's error, he's driven by greed, he's, he's compelled, he wants to just kind of get whatever he can get out of it, and there seems to be, you know, that also we think these false teachers were, were driven by greed, but, but, but it's not just Balaam's sin, 
It's all these other people who are hurt by Balaam's sin. So again, it spreads. And then his third example is a a rebellion. He says Korah's rebellion. That also comes from Numbers, Numbers chapter 16. Uh, This guy Korah leads a rebellion against Moses. Moses, after all Moses has done for them, this guy Korah is like, we don't like you anymore, Moses. We want to get rid of you. So so, so he, he leads this rebellion. And it's not just his own little private rebellion. He, he's got 250 people in the same camp with him. So he, is, uh, he has tricked, he's led astray 250 other people. And so they, they, they uh, try to, to basically overthrow kind of through political machinations kind of uh, Moses. And God puts a very quick end to the rebellion. This is the one where, if you haven't read it recently, God uh, opens up the ground beneath them, they fall in, and then God closes it again, All right? That's the end of Korah's rebellion, 250 people. So Korah's sin, but it's not just his sin, it's 250 others. And then actually it gets worse because if you keep reading in that chapter, if you read all the way through to the end of number 16, you had the, the next day a bunch of the Israelites are like, man, look what happened to Korah. And they're all mad at Moses about it. They actually come and complain to Moses, basically said, they basically blame Moses for what Korah did. And God, God sends another plague and you get another 14,700 people. Number 16, 14,700 die in the affair. So again, one man's sin, one man's rebelliousness, one man's dissatisfaction with his position. I, I think I should be in charge, not Moses. One man's pride. And we end up with 15,000 people who are hurt and affected. By, by what he did. And that's the problem with sin, right? If you look at this illustration, it's probably true with some of the other ones too, but I thought it really stopped, stood out with verse 11. Sin spreads. It doesn't just corrupt one person, right? It doesn't just corrupt the sinner. It corrupts all the other people who are around that person, right? It's that whole example thing. Well, if she can do that, maybe I can do that too, right? Or if, if he can get away with that, maybe I can get away with it too. And it, it spreads and it spreads and it spreads. And that leads right into the next one. The fourth ex- uh, reason it's bad is that it also therefore hurts people. So as that corruption spreads, it then hurts people. And, and you, you see that in the examples I just cited, right? So not only does it spread, but then it destroys. So Cain hurt Abel, right? Cain killed Abel. So Cain hurt Abel, Balaam hurt the Israelites, Korah hurt those 15,000 who joined in his rebellion. Uh, And then you see it more, uh, Jude comments more directly in verse 12. And so right right out of the Korah's rebellion thing, he says, these, the false teachers, and the teaching they're promoting, are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds, here's what they are, they are shepherds feeding themselves. So if you look at your text, verses 12 and 13, uh, Jude is going to give us six pictures in a row. They, they, they're almost like, uh, you know, shotgun fire. Boom, 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 boom. He gives us six pictures in a row of the damage that sin does, right? So he's talking about what the false teachers are like, but when you remember what the false teachers are promoting, I think you can read these. These are all pictures of sin, right? They're pictures of the dangerousness of sin that they were promoting. And the first two have to do with this, this idea of hurt being hurtful hurting, destroying, bringing corruption and destruction wherever it goes. Um, hidden reefs. Hidden reefs, he says, at your love feasts. Uh, what's a love feast? That's uh, a funny term to us, but to them, that was what they called their gatherings, right? They, would, they gathered in the love of God. They gathered in, in God's love. So that was the love part. The feast part was actually a, the, the, the Lord's table, we think. We do believe they also ate meals together. There's lots of evidence for that. But um, in the early church, you know, we don't have to do it this way, obviously, but, but in the early church, they would sometimes refer to their worship services as love feasts. And so, 
So these, these, these false teachers, they're not just kind of on the TV, right? They're, they're infiltrating the church. They're, they're, they've infiltrated the, the church, he says, but not in a good way, right? Sometimes things infiltrate in a good way, although we, you know, infiltrate's kind of a negative word, but, but this isn't good. They're hidden reefs, right? Hidden reefs. I don't know a lot about boating or shipping, but I know that a hidden reef is a dangerous thing, right? A hidden reef is a bad thing. If the captain can see the reef, he can steer around it. But if the captain never sees the reef and they plow into that reef, they're going to rip the hull open and the ship's going to sink. And that's what these, these teachings are. And that's what sin is, right? The people who promote sin, it, they're hidden reefs, shipwrecking people's faith. Right? I, I, I make it my ambition, I hope you make it your ambition, not to be the negative obstacle that another believer had to overcome in his or her testimony. Right? You don't want to be the, you know, everybody's got, you know, son, you know and then that pastor, you know, he, he, he went and he did this awful thing, he embezzled all the money from the church, but I, I stayed with Jesus anyway. Uh, don't be that guy, right? Don't be the, the obstacle someone else had to overcome, because that's what he's describing here, hidden reefs that shipwreck other people's faith. His other image is selfish shepherds, right? That's so image number two there, shepherds feeding themselves, Jude warns. Uh, that implies that at least some of them were leaders, Right? At least some of these false teachers were, were people with authority, which makes them even more dangerous because they're not there to actually feed the people. They're there to just feed themselves. That's that, that idea of greed uh, that he carries over from Balaam. So there's this danger of, of greediness. They're just, they're, they're just in it for themselves, for the money, for the likes, for the royalties, whatever it might be. They're, they're in it for themselves. They look like sheep, but they're really wolves in sheep's clothing. So they hurt. They hurt God's people. That's what makes sin so dangerous because sin hurts other people. Number five, the fifth reason uh, why is sin so dangerous? Sin is so dangerous because it doesn't even satisfy. It doesn't even satisfy. And that's what we see with the other four pictures. You know, so I was looking at these and meditating on them. What do they have in common? What is he saying here? Uh, in the middle of verse 12, so these false teachers and their false teaching and the sin they're promoting, what's it like? Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Uh, there's, there's destructiveness with that, right? Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness, there's that judgment again, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Those are all pictures. Again, they're pictures of a few different things, but, but if I, I, I try to find a unifying theme for those four, those four images, it's that they're all unsatisfying, right? They're all unproductive or ineffective or, or um, they're, they're, they, they don't satisfy with what they say they're going to do. And so a waterless cloud has no rain, right? We've, we've had a, we had a dry summer. I don't know where we're at now, but you know, you'd see clouds. You're like, oh, good. That's, I see some storms on the radar. Oh, good. We're going to get some rain. Oh, no rain. Just waterless clouds. Not for us anyway. Fruitless trees, right? A fruitless tree is useless, Right, it might look good. Maybe it's pumping some, what did they give off? Oxygen, right? What, you know, maybe it's doing something good that way, but it's got no fruit, right? We're going to cut that down probably if it's taking up space in your orchard. Fruitless trees, waterless clouds, wild waves, right? So these aren't waves that can be harnessed and used to get your ship from one place to another. These are dangerous waves. They're unpredictable. There's no safe passage. So that's unsatisfying. And then wandering stars, there's no guidance, He's either talking about planets, I guess, you know, the planets kind of follow their own path up there, at least that's how it looks like to us down here, um, or, or he might be talking about meteorites, 
right? So, so you've got your fixed stars that you can navigate by, right? You find that North Star, you know where North is. That's how that works. But a meteorite goes flying through the air. You're not going to use that. You're not going to navigate by a meteorite. That's useless. And so they're wandering stars. They're, they're useless. They have nothing to offer. If you need guidance, you're not going to want to guide yourself by that little dot that they tell us is Jupiter. You're going to want to guide yourself by something that's trustworthy, that's fixed. And so I think what Jude is saying here is he's saying that's what sin is like. That's what false teachers and the sin they're promoting is like. It doesn't come through for us. It doesn't satisfy. And that's one of the things about sin. We could show this from so many other places. Sin overpromises and underperforms. Right? It's like a really bad hire. It overpromises and it underperforms. Pornography is a great example of this. It really is. Because pornography to, to our culture makes and to us, makes all kinds of promises, right? It promises intimacy. It promises excitement, right? It promises satisfaction, right? That's what it holds out. But then it doesn't come through, right? That, that's not a real person on the screen. I mean, yes, there's a real person behind that person on the screen. There's a real person you know, removed, but, but that image on the, on the screen or, that, or on, the, on the book or the, the, the page, whatever it is, it's just pixels. That's not a real person. And so it, it promises intimacy, it promises relationship, but there's, it has none of, none of that to offer. It's, it's not real. And so it, it, it doesn't satisfy, which is why it always escalates. If you read the literature on the nature of pornography, it always, it always escalates. Why? Because it doesn't satisfy. It's like a waterless cloud or a fruitless tree. Materialism is another example, right? We, could, we have lots of examples here. Uh, it's, it's true with stuff, right? No matter how much we buy, we always want more. No matter how much, it's the same principle. Now, stuff and good, you know, stuff is useful, right? I mean, stuff is useful, but, but when we, we start going after it like an idol, right? When we go after material things with, in, a, in a way that's driven by greed and envy, back to that Balaam's error, right? That the satisfaction very quickly disappears, Right? which is why there's a new iPhone every, every 12 months or whatever it is. Right? Instead of being happy with what we have, we always want more and more and more and more. It's the same thing with materialism. If we let that become an idol in our life, if we give it that place, it's not gonna, it, it overpromises and it underperforms. And that's what sin's like, uh, not just in those two examples, but in every case. Not only does it hurt people, but it's not even worth it. It's not even worth it in the end. Sin never satisfies. Number six, uh, the sixth reason sin is dangerous is that it leads to judgment. Sin leads to God's judgment. Now, I know right now you're wondering if I've, uh, I've gone on so long, I'm starting to get forgetful. Uh, I have not. Uh, I know that is exactly the same point we made in the first point, but Jude says it again. So I decided to say it again rather than try to deal with both sections. He, he, he goes back to it. Right? Some things are so important, we say them again, and that's what Jude does in verses 14 and 15. He comes back to judgment. And again, he's going to do it in a way that makes some of us scratch our heads. He says, it was also about these, the false teachers, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. If you're scratching your head trying to remember where Enoch said that, uh, you're not alone. Uh, Enoch, you might remember Enoch is a, a character. He's, he's, he's actually, in terms of volume of space he gets, it's very little. 
You meet him in Genesis chapter 5, and that's it. He's most famous for Enoch walked with God and then was not. Right? He's that guy. And that's usually interpreted, I think rightly so, that God took him up into heaven. So Enoch did not have to die. Uh, he, was, he was taken up into heaven. But uh, I don't remember him saying anything. And, and if you're wondering, where, where did that happen? Where did Enoch say something? Um, it's not in the Bible. It comes from another one of these extra books, one of these extra biblical books. There's actually, actually three of them called uh, Enoch, the first, second, and third books of Enoch. Uh, it's possible some of you have read that because I think one of them is maybe in the, uh, the Catholic Bible. Um, but more, than like, more, more likely than not, most of us have not read those books either. But again, in the first century, if we were Jews, these were like Tolkien are to some people, or Narnia books are to some people, you know, where people read them again and again and again because they find them so inspiring. That's what uh, First Enoch, which is what he's quoting from, is like. And so, again, Jude isn't saying First Enoch belongs in our Bibles. He's simply saying, hey, that book you guys have read, just like I'm, I'm sure I've quoted from the Lord of the Rings over the years, I've enjoyed those books. I'm not telling you J.R. Tolkien was a, an inspired author of Scripture. I'm simply telling, hey, this thing Tolkien write really illustrates this thing God says really well. And that's what Jude is doing here with this, this quote from Enoch. And what, so what's his point? His point is the point we've talked about a bit along the way. Uh, sin leads to God's judgment. He reminds us, he reminds his readers, it's dangerous stuff because of that. Finally, number seven. Finally, number seven, sin makes people terrible. And, and I, I, you could probably go a different way with this last one, but as I was thinking about numbers, uh, verse 16, I'm like, you just don't want to be around these people. These are terrible people, right? Not only does sin lead to eternal punishment, it just makes people really nasty in the present. So verse 16, he says, these the teachers, are grumblers. Why? Because of this sin they're indulging. They're grumblers, they're malcontents, following their own sinful desires, they're loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. You just don't want to be around these people. I think that's what he's reminding us here. You know, it's, there's a warning aspect to it, but, but the, it's a, remember, he's, he's, he's not rebuking them. He's writing to us. He's saying, you don't want to be around them, and you definitely don't want to be like them. Right? If you're looking at their life and going, boy, I wish I could live like that, this is where it's going to land. They're grumblers. They complain all the time. They chase after their own desires, and so other people experience them as selfish is what that means. They're loud mouths. They boast. They play favorites. They're always on the make, looking for a way to use other people to their own advantage. Yuck! I think that's how we're supposed to respond to verse 16. There's supposed to be this sense of revulsion. Yuck! I don't want to be like that. You know, the world, the world tells you and me that sin makes people happy, right? We see it in the movies, we see it, you know, sometimes they get it right and you see people are really miserable because of their sin, but a lot of times the whole message is sin makes people happy, right? Those are the fun people. I, I know it dates me, but I always, uh, well, I always think of that old Billy Joel song, Only the Good Die Young. It was kind of popular when I was a kid. You know, Only the Good Die Young. What is he saying? He said, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints, he says. Right? Sinners are much more fun, a few lines later. Right? Who wants to hang out with those grouchy old Christians? Who wants that, right? Well, if, if Jude was a music reviewer in the 20th century, he would have said, no way, Billy. You got that one wrong, buddy. Sinners are not the fun people. On the contrary, they're terrible people. And, and that's what he says. It, it, sin messes people up, not just their circumstances. A lot of times we take that reap what you sow principle and we'll apply it to circumstances. You know, so if you you know, if you, you know, drink to excess and get drunk all the time, that's going to, you know, there's circumstances to be, to be dealt with like that, for example. Um, but Jude says that messes up their personalities too. 
And so if we needed another reason, I don't know that we do at this point, but if we needed yet another reason, Jude, to uh, reject sin in our lives, here's another one. People are going to hate us. People are not going to like us if we, if we keep indulging in it. Sin makes people terrible. It has a way of corrupting us. Well, if someone offered you poison, would you take it? Of course not. Of course you wouldn't take it. It should be the same thing here. It should be the same thing with this. If, if someone offers us a perversion of grace, to use Jude's term, if, if someone tries to sell us on a version of spirituality, right, a version, everybody's spiritual these days. If someone tries to sell us on a version of spirituality that puts sin ahead of the Savior, we should have the same response as we would to a bowl of poison. Of course not. Of course not. Get that away from me. That's dangerous. I don't want anything to do with it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of Scripture. Thank you for the warnings here. Thank you for uh, um, the help and the strength that you give us in your Holy Spirit to to resist and to turn away from that which is evil. Uh, We have all those resources. We have uh, the mercy, the grace, the peace that I didn't talk about in in verse 2. We have that common salvation that Jude would have written about if this dangerous threat hadn't have been so strong. We have so many resources, and we pray that you would make us a people who stand on those resources and draw on them and take this stuff seriously. Sin is not something to be dabbled with. It's not something to sip from. It's something to be rejected and thrown away. Help us to live that way. In Jesus' name, amen.